Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 94 of Real Blend, a podcast that is being filmed in one unbroken, continuous Roger Deacon shot. Ooh, I understand that reference. Very fancy. Uh, Episode highlights. We're going to get to a lot of stuff this week uh, as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday season. A ton of really great movies that are in theaters and um, some really cool films that we have seen most recently that we're going to give you our opinions on, including 1917 Reactions, and that's what that joke was all about. We're going to talk about Knives Out and the new film Queen and Slim, and we have an interview, as promised, last week with director Ryan Johnson. I hope you guys all listened to Kevin's conversation with Jamie Lee Curtis last week, an unbelievably great interview. And so for that reason, I'm going to start with Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5, Washington, D.C., co-host of the Real Blend podcast. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah, great great to hear from you. Uh, good to see you again, Sean, even though we just saw each other for three <laughs> or four days in uh, in Cabo for Jumanji, the next level. Um, Gabe? Hope you guys had a wonderful time. I really do. That sounds, Sean? That sounds lovely. Uh, Jake, good to talk to you. Kevin, I finally saw, were you the one telling me about the Kevin Hart video of him uh, with the espressos? <laughs> Yeah, that was amazing. I, I finally watched that, and he did not—he did not look healthy. No, no, at all. Yeah, he was—he had to go to the bathroom real bad. <laughs> R e e l, real bad, real bad. Uh, that other voice that you hear uh, is Jake Hamilton of Fox Thirty Two in Chicago. Hello, sir. How are you? The voice that is dripping with FOMO over not going to Cabo. I had Cabo. No, FOMO. dripping with swag. You were dripping with swag. Let's go with that. (laughs) That's what I like to hear. Um, We have, uh, like I said, a lot of things to get to this week, but we start each episode now, recently, uh, with our weekly poll. And I thought that this was a more balanced question uh, than it ended up being. But the question was, you can see only one movie this December. Sean. It has to be... And I'll go go from least to most popular. Sean. Uh... 7% 7% of the people said something else. And these were things that got mentioned. Little Women, Six Underground, which has a terrific trailer, uh, Bombshell, which Jake saw last night and I'm seeing tonight. Kevin's already seen it. And Cats. All of those were mentioned under the something else category. 11% cats? said 19... Yeah, Cats got mentions. Yes. Tom Hooper listens to the show. Uh, <laughs> 1917 got 11% and Uncut Gems got 13%. Now, before I get to the winner... Those two movies are tremendous, and more people should be interested in going to see both. Not over the number one pick, and Sean. Uncut Gems. Listen, I'm trying to it, support original cinema. I the, get it. Okay, Mark Scorsese, calm down. But which one would you have picked if you were to vote? I would pick like the 69 other people. Yes. Okay. Picked Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker. So that was the winner in the weekly poll. And and a few people, I'm glad, thankful for everybody. I'm thankful for everybody who legitimately played along. But the one or two people who were like, is it, why is this even a question? Like, is this even a poll? And I thought that, you know, Last Jedi might have soured a few people on the ah. franchise. But, uh, and we're going to get into this as a talking point a little bit later on. That nostalgia video that they put out oh to get people hyped about the 
the 40 years of Star Wars. I especially want Jake to sort of weigh in on that. And then something very special happened in that video that got Kevin got Kevin's attention too, and I want him to weigh in on that. Uh, BDK, throw us to the Ryan Johnson interview. Tell us how this got all set up and and how he was able to come on the show and talk about his his new film, Knives Out. Well, the Ryan Johnson interview happened because of you, Sean. Sean, you, I think oh, you and, hey, and well, in, in all honesty, <laughs> you and Gabe, I think we're working that relationship with uh, with Lionsgate, uh, and it was you know it was a bunch of emails back and forth. But specifically, Ryan Johnson, we we really wanted him because obviously we're a very director focused podcast. We welcome all all walks of filmmaking on our podcast, but directors are generally our go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ryan Johnson, being one of the best directors in Hollywood today. To be have him on our show is insane. And Knives Out is one of my favorite movies of the year. It, we all loved Knives Out. And uh, I want to give a shout out to Jeff McCobb before I toss to this. Uh, Jeff, I mentioned last week, uh, just again, he drove 45 minutes just to bring microphones just so we could record this. And uh, to be in that room with Jeff, who's a big fan of Ryan Johnson, and you know, to actually sit down with Ryan Johnson and talk about a lot of things that have happened to him recently with all the controversy surrounding Last Jedi, uh, how he got over that, uh, and just the idea of some of the cool shots and Knives Out. We talk about Brick. We talk about uh, his basically his whole filmography, and he talks about a lot about what some of the things he wants to direct next. Uh, so here's Ryan Johnson for Knives Out. Well, first of all, Ryan, this is an absolute honor. Thanks for being on the Real Blend podcast. Thank you for having me. truly an honor. Um, I want to talk to you about, so we have a couple different hosts on our show, Sean and Jake, and Sean actually gave this great question about when you're writing a film like this, when you're dealing with a whodunit idea, at what point in the writing process do you find who the killer is going to be? Is it at the beginning of the writing process? Do you find it midway through writing? Where, when does that come about? Well, I mean, the way I write, and I've, I've done this with all my movies, it, it actually, it's a little different than that. I start really, really structurally. So I start even more like satellite map zoomed back abstract than, than plot. I start with, and with, in the case of this movie, for example, you know, I, I love whodunits. I know I wanted to do a whodunit, but I also know one of the potential pitfalls of a whodunit is, um, that it's kind of a big build up to one big surprise at the end, mm-hmm. which isn't all that interesting. Like who done it? Can you guess it? Can you not? And who, who cares? Kind of. So I, the idea here was to keep everything I love about who done it, but put the engine of a Hitchcock thriller in the middle. And so I have that idea and then I zoom in a little bit more and I think, okay, well that means we need a character that you care about throughout the course of it. That means we kind of maybe do this sort of thing. And that means we need this. And so as I'm filling in the blanks, I kind of create what I need to make that shape work, including the characters, including the plot. So it's not like I start with what if this person did it in the library with the candlestick, you know, and then build it backwards or go forwards and discover that. I start thinking narratively about the shape of the whole thing and then create the pieces as I need them. Were there alternate killers? No, no. It was because always this one. Yeah, because thing. because I because that's because if you work that way, you kind of it's it's not even like a you know. And the truth is, they're kind of hopefully you construct it so they're kind of dramatically can't be, you know. I mean, there's only one way it really works because it's designed to work that way. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now, I, I believe you shot digitally on this movie yeah. and you've shot film for a long time and the movie still looks like film, oh, which is interesting. Me. When I found out it was digital. I was like, what, really? Yeah. I, was like, I had no idea. What was it like for you as a director working digitally in the sense of like, did, did it yeah. affect the way you shot? Did it affect the way you filmed? Because 
film runs out. Mags run out, obviously. You know what, what was though? It like for you? Digital runs out, too. You yeah. still got to change the chip. Yeah, it's, that's kind of a big lie of digital. You can just keep shooting and shooting. You can't. You still have a chip. It's, it lasts a little longer a little than, longer, a, than yeah. a big film thing, but no, not significantly, though. So it's, uh, no, it, it, I didn't change my process at, at all on set. I didn't. I'm not one of those guys who just keeps the camera rolling and goes over. I, I kind of, it was still very much, you know, start, stop, just like I would shoot with film. Um, yeah, it was, it, for me, it was honestly, it was a, almost like an existential crisis for me shooting on digital with this one, like the choice to shoot on digital. Cause I have just been a big film guy my entire life. Was it life. your idea? No, no. It was Steve Yedlin, my cinematographer's idea. And we've, Oof. Steve and I have a very close relationship. We've been like best friends since we were 17 years old and he shot all of my movies, which we've always done on film. And he's also an incredibly technically adept color science guy. And Steve's basic, uh, Steve basically has a, uh, it's almost a philosophy, but it's based in facts. It's basically from Steve's perspective right now with imaging technology, there, there's no reason that what you capture your image on needs to define the look of mm. what you're doing. And so whether you shoot on – what Steve told me over and over is it takes more – it's harder for him to make film look like film than to make digital look like film. Wow. Because every single thing you see, whether it's shot on film or digital, it goes through the exact same digital post chain. And the, it's the exact same DI, the digital color correction process. And that means for the film, you have to scan the film into a computer and make sure you're getting fidelity in that step where you're doing the scanning. And then you have to take that image and color time it. And then you're going to either spit it out to a DCP or maybe go back to film at the end. Um, I mean, the truth is there are movies every year that are shot on film that look like they're shot on, look more digital than our movie does basically. Mm. Um, Anyway, so Steve's whole thing is about turn. I'm sorry, this is a very long answer. No, it's I, I, interesting, this is interesting to me. To me. I'm so, okay, curious. good. Yeah. So, so Steve's whole thing is the ins if you know what you're doing with the color science, you can apply grain to it. You hmm. can. We even applied a filter that imitated the halation, which is kind of the way that the light that flares discolor with film. Um, he applied a gate weave to it, so the Im whole image is shaking a little bit the whole time, which hmm. indicates to your eye that it's film. And then he has a color science where he's emulated film and with his color curves and programmed uh, lookup tables where it, it emulates the, the color of film. And uh, man, I'll tell you, we, there's one shot in the movie that's on 35. For my birthday, Steve brought in a 35 <laughs> camera because he knew I was heartbroken. We oh shot one film on 35. It's a close-up of Daniel. It's in the movie. And I'll be damned if you can tell shot to shot which one it is. Why that shot was just the It was just to be it happened to the one. Yeah, can happened you tell to me the one. I've seen it twice now. I want to know what it is. I, I never want to tell anyone <laughs> the shot. It's a, I'll tell you this. It's a close-up of Daniel during the final big library scene. Okay. It's kind of just, it's nothing too special about it. It's just a close-up. Is there dialogue in the close-up? Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll look yeah. for it. Take I'll a look. look See if you can spot it. Okay. You, you can't. Spoiler, spoiler, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the game now. I'm going to go right. out and see it like 10 more times. Yeah. Um, was there ever, a, was there ever an idea of shooting Jedi digitally? Uh, we, well, we shot JJ shot well, <coughs> film, right? We shot about half and half. Oh, you shot half and half. Yeah. And the truth is we started shooting mostly film and by the end we were shooting mostly digital. Okay. Yeah. Now, one of the things I love about this movie, the idea, I told you this when I saw you at Marriage Story and, and at TIFF 
is this shot where uh, Anna's character is coming out of the house after we find out what happens with the will reading. Yeah. And it's this gorgeous shot where the camera gets picked up as if we're kind of like going into the anxiety of that moment. Yeah. You, I think you told me a marriage story that you've been trying to do that shot for years. Can you talk about the history of why that shot never made it into another movie of yours and like what was the original design of it? What yeah. movies did you originally have it designed for? I've tried to do it a couple of times where the idea of starting on a dolly and then a certain dramatic point in the scene switching to handheld. Hmm. I mean, it's not like a breakthrough idea or something, but it's just something that we've tried a few times and it's never quite worked. But it immerses you in the moment. That's the idea is if you do it right, it pulls you into the headspace of the character. So, and the whole movie, there's, a, there's, I don't think there's any other handheld in the entire movie. It's a very locked down, solid movie. And so we have this shot where to get inside Anna's character's head, we start on a dolly, a very basic thing. And then suddenly chaos surrounds Anna and we go and we just literally lift it off the dolly and go into handheld mode um, and uh, and go into a long shot from there. So yeah, that was it was gratifying to get that one in there. Do you me. write that shot in the script? Is that no, I, I don't I don't like to write shots into scripts. I mean, I'm thinking visually while I'm writing, so I'm picturing shots while I'm writing. But um, when I'm writing, I'm really trying to write for a reader. Yeah. And to me, if I'm sitting there describing every single shot that's just getting in the way of you experiencing the story as a reader. Um, and, and I think I feel like I don't need to dictate shots because I'm going to be the one who's on set, you know, setting them up. Yeah. So, yeah. One thing I love about your filmmaking over the years, and I, you and I did a Brothers Bloom Q&A in D.C. once, uh, Brick, obviously, you make very, very awesome, unique films that speak to your voice. It, I, I know I'm watching a Ryan Johnson film in the sense of like, it just, it just, I love your style. I love your taste, but everything Thanks, still man. feels different every time. <laughs> but I think you take risks and I think more filmmakers should take risks in regards to storytelling and things they do. I read a great quote recently by, I'm sure you've seen it by now by JJ Abrams, who mm -hmm. said that episode nine is what it is because of the risks you took on episode eight. Mm -hmm. What did that mean for you to read him saying that? Because mm -hmm. like that, I think that's such a cool thing. It's, you're not making the movie that's already been made before. You're making your own movie. And I feel like nine now seems like it's going to be a more risky film because of what you set up with eight. Well, I mean, that was so incredibly kind of JJ to say that. I mean, I know, you know, I, I don't think JJ needs any inspiration from me. I think he's an incredible storyteller who I, I, I knew from the instant that he, you know, uh, that he was doing it, that he, you know, that I knew that he was doing nine. He's going to figure out a way to, that's going to both completely surprise all of us and satisfy us deeply at the end of the saga. So that was incredibly kind words from him. But, Do you uh, know where it goes though? I've, I'm staying. That's I'm interesting. Staying, I, I want to sit down like a Star Wars fan and just get my popcorn and just be 10 years old again and see this whole thing brought home in a beautiful way that surprises me. So but I, how can I you be wait. 10 years old again if you made the movie before it? Like, that's crazy. It's, I, well, you totally can. Of yeah. course you can. You snap right back into it, man. It's Star Wars, you know? It just, yeah. it takes you there. It transports you. The instant that John Williams score comes up, you know, the instant you're back in that world and it's just, you hear those lightsaber sounds, it's just snap you're but you're back to being 10 what i love about you as a filmmaker is when i watch a movie you make i feel the passion of your film fandom coming through your work uh, we talked about sleuth last night and yeah. films that have inspired you throughout the years and you've made so many incredible films you talk about this idea of nathan and, and his scores and this yeah. music when you're writing a script how involved is nathan in the process of what you write because yeah. a score is a leading character a score can also give away clues mm. throughout the film based on how music is used 
How involved is the writing with your with that score? Well, I'm 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 rarely kind of uh, you know going back and forth with Nathan while I'm writing, but when I get some, I, he's usually the first person I'll tell ideas to, and we will kind of bounce stuff off of each other, and then he's one of the first people I show a script to always, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and we do back and forth and he's very helpful in terms of giving notes, but mostly it's so we can start talking about tonally, where is this thing going to be musically? And yeah. Nathan, he, I mean, talk about doing something different every time. Like he's so, he, Nathan and I love the challenge of what is the completely unique approach to the score that's going to serve this movie best. Mm. Um, and that's, you look at Nathan's scores and they're so completely different, yeah. each one of them. Um, and this is his first time working with a full orchestra. This is it first, really? This is his first time writing for a full orchestra. Oh, we cool. went out to Abbey Road together and recorded <laughs> a full orchestra. It was so much fun. It was amazing. Can I ask you what that yeah. looks like? So when you're at Abbey Road recording, yeah. Is your film playing there like a normal no, scoring session? No, they have it timed out with like a click track, basically. <laughs> and so the conductor is like, then the conductor will have uh, very often, like John Williams, when he does it, he has a TV where he can see it, but the orchestra can't yeah, can't see the movie. And, wow. and they're just kind of going along to the timing of what the conductor is telling them. As a filmmaker who does continue to use the same people in your in your filmmaking process, your cinematographer, your, mm. your Nathan, your composer, when you do something, Thing, like you mentioned John Williams and Star Wars is that is that just a commonly known thing that when you pick up that movie Nathan's not going to be involved do you have to do you have to break that to him it, obviously well, it's John Williams he is understood the, yeah, in this yeah. Game. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. it's got to be different working with a different composer though it would have been you. funny if he was sulky about it like, <laughs> I can do Star Wars music too <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear Nathan's uh, Last Jedi score are you I, kidding me man no, it'd be fascinating but listen Star I mean John he's you know he, he, he's pure magic, you yeah. know what I mean? And, um, I mean, Nathan would just, I brought Nathan to a few of the scoring sessions and Nathan was good. Sure he was <laughs> out, man. There's no one better than John Williams today. And it's, uh, he's extraordinary. And it, it's the process with John is, is, um, opposite of the process with Nathan for Ooh. me in that with Nathan, I'm very, we're very collaborative You're and we're sync. in there together. We're in sync. We're hands on with John. It's this magical thing where you, hand him the movie. It's like Spielberg puts it, you give John your movie and he gives you a whole new movie back. You know, it really, you give it to him and he does his thing. There were only a couple of things where he, he, he played us the, and the first time you hear the cues that he's written is when you're on stage and they're being recorded by the full orchestra. And there's uh, cause he doesn't temp anything up. He just writes them himself at the piano and scores them himself by hand. And then you show up on the day and you hear what he's done. Um, yeah, there were just a couple of scenes in The Last Jedi where I even like had adjustments for him, but mostly it's just like, yep, that's that's exactly what it needed. I want to see you walk up to Williams and give him an adjustment. <laughs> well, he's very no, no, it's a, he's very sweet. He's very and he's yeah. very open to that. He's he's not like a this is the way it is. Not at all. He's incredible. I mean, he's a collaborator and he's very very um, creatively open to collaboration. He thrives on it. Yeah. You look at something like Brick. We were just talking about Brick when you walked in the room. What is the biggest lesson you learned on Brick as a filmmaker that still is applied today <clears> to <throat> this Knives Out film? Like if you look back yeah. and go, I learned that and Knives Out is better because of that. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, Brick was really the first time I worked with real actors. So, um, you know, uh, working with Joe Gordon-Levitt and, you know, and Noah Segan, who's still, who was, you know, both of those guys are in Knives Out and Nora and... Lucas Haas, I mean, the whole crew, it was, um, for me, that was 
I think learning on brick that I loved working with actors and that I took mm. real, that, that was, it became, when I stepped onto the set of brick, it was the scariest thing in the world to me. Cause I think you imagine that there's some secret language actors have, or you need to speak in some kind of code to them or something. And the instant I clicked into this thing of realizing, nah, we're just telling a story together. And if I, you can communicate clearly, like, and you, all you have to be is an audience for them and you just have to react react honestly in terms of what you're feeling from what they're giving you. And like, mm. if that's not serving the purpose of the scene, then you talk out how to adjust, you know, but, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess that was, you know, the big lesson for the big thing I learned on brick was, was that my favorite part of the process is working with the actors. Is Noah's character in Knives Out you? You know, it's Noah. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of both of us. Noah, as Noah puts it, he gets to be like the audience. He gets yeah. to be like the fanboy who's just happy to be there and is soaking it up and enjoying it all. Yeah. So yeah, it is kind of me too. You know, I mean the, like for instance, the, one of my favorite types of scenes in all of fiction is the big denouement at the end where the detective lays the whole yep. who done it out in the library. And there's a moment during, during our version of that scene where Noah kind of, someone starts to say something that's going to interrupt and Noah kind of shushes him because he's so excited about this. <laughs> he's, he's so into the moment. And that's how I feel about those moments. So that's cool. But hopefully that's how the audience feels too. You know, he gets to kind of be the one who's having fun. Yeah. yeah. You, you think about, you mentioned Spielberg and filmmakers and you are in, you are in a league where you are working on a level, in my opinion, where those filmmakers are. And I, and I, uh, and I, I don't yeah. say, I don't it's say that, kind of I don't say that because we're sitting here, but yeah. I genuinely mean it. But I want to know, is there a story for you specifically where a filmmaker that you idolized growing up mm -hmm. came up to you and said, Ryan, I loved that film that oh. you made. I mean, that, that's, yeah. And the one that hit you the hardest, maybe. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing more powerful, nothing more powerful than that. I feel like I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to say it just because it would, it would feel like bragging. I feel like I would be exposing that moment where it's just like a private personal thing. Okay. Somebody told me that, but I've, I've had a few of those moments and it's been, there's nothing that it's almost too joyful to process when somebody who is a, your hero and somebody who you grew up watching their movies and somebody who you learned, I mean, in a way, you know, when they compliment you, they're complimenting themselves back because I feel yeah. like these are people who I learned just by studying their films over and over. So I just, mm -hmm. I always just, you know, I, I, I've, just, I've just replied, you know, I learned it from watching you. I learned it from watching you, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've, I've been very, very lucky to have a couple of those moments. They're really special. That's cool. I'm glad. Yeah. I think and that's cool that you keep them to yourself. Though. Yeah. I, I, uh, I appreciate that. And now obviously Breaking Bad, my favorite show of all time. I actually have a, uh, a Walter White tattoo. On oh, okay. Um, but you directed so. arguably the greatest episode in the show, mm -hmm. Ozzy Mendez and, yeah. and the fly, I love the fly episode. Yeah, but, and I think you man. shot like some 16 and eight on that, which is kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you look at what happened with El Camino recently, mm -hmm. which was, an, I thought Vince did a great it's job. Gorgeous, it. man. It's beautiful. So beautiful. What were your thoughts on where Pinkman's story ended? Like, oh, it was perfect. That was you perfect. Like, did oh, you envision him it. kind of coming out like that? Did you, like when you were directing Pinkman's character and, do you mean at the end of uh, Breaking of, Bad? Of Breaking Bad of the actual season, not at the end of El Camino. Yeah, I mean, you you don't know what to. The great thing about Breaking Bad was you didn't know where it was going to go moment to moment. I mean, so no, it's not like I. I was on set with Ozzy Mandius and I hadn't. I you know I I, I didn't want to read the. La I think the last two scripts are floating around, and I purposefully would like stick my finger in my ears when people were talking about them. I per I really didn't want to know, hmm. and. Um, no, I could have never guessed it. I mean, they went to such a dark place with it. Yeah. But then 
that was the beauty of El Camino. I think, you know, the moment in Breaking Bad where the last moment with Jesse is this cathartic kind of howl of, of release. And then to have this gorgeous, confident coda of El Camino and to have, I don't know, Vince's filmmaking and his writing is yeah. so confident. It's so steady hand. He's got a steady hand. It's exactly what he's going for. And he just, he brings it there. And then to see this mature, beautiful performance from Aaron, um, it's, I, I just loved it, man. Yeah. It was terrific. It's gotta be cool to watch as somebody who was involved in that project. Um, mm-hmm. there's a great uh, bit in Knives Out where the Michael Chan's character essentially wants to turn his father's books into movies and, mm-hmm. and plumbers like, we're not doing this. Yeah. You're, I'm essentially taking you off this, uh, the, uh, this project. You're not going to yeah. be working on this anymore. What is a book in your opinion that should never be turned into a film? Uh, hmm, that's interesting. I, I never, if I love a great book, if I love a book, the last thing on my mind is adapting it. Right. To me, if I love a book, it's generally because the pleasure I get from it is tied directly to its form. And I think I've made the analogy before, like the idea of I love this book, let's turn it into a movie. It, to me, that's kind of like, I love these boots, let's knit them into a sweater. You know, it's just a, a film is such a different thing. But some of the best films ever made have been adaptations of books. And Godfather, some of my, yeah, no, Jaws. Godfather, yeah, no kidding. And some of so what do I know? You know, so I'm, uh, but it's just in terms of creatively how I think, it's, it's, there's, you know, it, it, a, a move for me, and I think because I come up with my movies, I draw a lot of inspiration from books, but the story of a movie is a certain shape and a certain length. And I've always kind of come up with those from scratch, I guess. So mm. I'm, I'm, if I'm reading, I'm rarely reading thinking like, how do, how do I transform this into yeah. a movie? Now, Evans is eat shit moment is, this is a podcast we can curse, but it, sure. it, it's classic. I mean, it's yeah. in the trailers, it's great in the movie. Um, when you wrote that, what was, was it any different from how you wrote it to how it ended up on screen? Uh, do you remember filming yeah. it? Did you have him just say eat shit for like two hours? And like, how, how did that go down on the filming process and how yeah. different was it from the writing of it? Well, when I wrote it, it was, it was fuck you. He goes, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And oh, I didn't know that. Well, and I, I decided right before we started shooting, I was like, you know what? I really want this movie to be PG-13. I really, because I was thinking oh, about like growing up as a kid watching those Peter Ustinoff Poirot movies with my family and thinking that was the age when I got into this stuff and I, I thought, it, you know what? It's Let's make this change and let's mm. pull, I pulled a lot of F-bombs. There were a lot more F-bombs in this It feels are though. Yeah, it's PG-13. It's that yeah. I, I know yeah, 13, but yeah, I think yeah, you still sharing. kept the tone of an R. Good, man. good, good. Yeah. No, well, we kept the tone, but not the F-bombs. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I actually, I, I worked with Chris to figure out what he would do. And he, we came up with each shit instead. Yeah. yeah. I love uh, character choices. And there's little things that always stick with me about what a character says or what they do. Um, two particular things I want to bring up to you. The flipping of Daniel Craig's coin. Yeah. Um, is that a choice you make? Is that a choice Daniel makes? And can you speak to maybe why you think he does that? Why does he hit the piano key the way mm. he does? Like, what are these choices that Daniel comes up with? Or do you say like, maybe you should try this. What does the coin mean? Yeah, no, they're written into the script and typically mm. they serve, for me, if something's in the script, it's because it serves a specific story requirement. Mm. So for instance, the piano, which in the script is a little different. In the script, I had him tapping the back of the detective's chair with his foot. But then when I worked out the geography, I'm like, ah, oh, he's going to be too far away, but there's this piano here. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is kind of weird, but what if you hit the piano key? Um, and the purpose of that was to kind of First of all, to hold off Benoit's entrance yeah. 
to give Lakeith's character a little bit of room to establish himself and also just to build the anticipation. Um, and also just to kind of build up the weirdness of this character a little bit, you know, mm. there is a logic behind when he's saying the piano key, but really it's just kind of a strange thing. Like right. when Tony Collette says, who is that guy? <laughs> Where it's what we're all kind of thinking, you know, right. uh, and then the coin flip was even more one was just a, a very practical requirement of the story. I mm. wanted something to indicate that in the because we use it to go to a flashback. Yep. So when he flips it up in the air, we go to a very specific flashback, and I want to very clearly indicate when we come back that we're coming back to the exact same moment. That's cool. So I, I had that coin go up, and then we come back. It's up in the air, and we have it come down. And so yeah. if Evans asks for a cold glass of milk, yeah. what does that say about his character? Like, what, what, like, it's, it's just so something specific that thing that like yeah. to me. It, 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 it resonates as an audience member. It's something I, that yeah. I, it grounds the character in a certain reality for me. Yeah. And so is that why you do it like that? Well, that just kind of feels right. And that's also, it's kind of, it, you know, it's kind of infantile and it's kind of, there's something just annoying about people drinking milk <laughs> and, and yeah. asking someone else for a cold glass of milk. It's almost like you'd ask your mom for a cold glass of milk. But it's just, there's something about it that turn, makes him kind of, because at that moment he bursts in and he's he's been set up as this kind of, um, infantile child basically so the notion that he's eating cookies and milk just seemed to me that that would just hit tag that base of he's a yeah. you know he's he's just kind of like a brat you yeah. Know? yeah and even like uh, Anna's vomiting element I mean yeah. that that to me is such a perfect thing to kind of interweave throughout the script because then, and then every yeah. scene later on is she lying or is she not? Like it's, it's such a great, like, yeah. that's such a useful little tool. Well, but- and it's, and, and that again, to get, to get back to each one of these things is really just comes out of story needs. So with, with Anna's, you know, she, she, her character has this thing where she can't lie. If she lies, she pukes. And <laughs> the, the whole basis of that was, I mean, it's fun, but where it really came from is, you know, it's a character who's in a really tough situation that we want her to get out of. And her only tool for getting out of it is lying. And you want to make life as difficult for your characters as possible. So let's take away the one tool she has mm. to get out of this thing. And then it's like, well, okay, so we give her a tell when she lies. Does she blink twice or like <laughs> touch her nose or something? And then no, it's more fun to have her puke. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there, I love, I love that aspect of the movie. Um, as you're watching the film, there are, like you learn about these characters in very short bursts. Like Jaden Martell's character, we learn that like there's a, there's a lot of bullying going on in his yeah. regard. Like people are making fun of him, and I find that to be interesting because as somebody who was bullied growing up, and like any any type of bullying that's happening now on the internet, mm. things like that. I thought that was such a relevant and interesting thing to do. As somebody as a reporter, you know, you get one or two negative comments, it kind of sticks with you and kind of hurts your feelings. Yeah. As a filmmaker, you you're you're out there to the world, and people are judging your work, and mm. people can send you messages. And I know. You, I know you talked a lot about what happened with Last Jedi and kind mm-hmm. of getting all of the controversial comments from that. How do you kind of come, like, how do you step aside from that and go, you mm-hmm. know what, I'm going to continue down this path? Because I feel like a lot of people would kind of give up if they were getting negative comments. And, yeah. and I think that you, this is such a great film and I'm just happy that, I'm just happy that you are doing yeah. the films you are. How do you move forward that. when you get negative responses? Well, I mean, you just, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I guess a big part of it is, um, I don't know. On Twitter, like the reason I'm still on Twitter is because 95% of what I get on there is incredibly positive and right. constructive. And so it's balanced by, it's more than balanced. So the bad is overwhelmed by the amount of, of good. I'm not even talking good in terms of people liking 
the movies or liking the stuff, but good in terms of people being genuinely good hearted and wanting to engage in a positive way, you know? And, um, and so, and with star Wars, that's absolutely the case, yeah. you know? Uh, so, you know, there is that balance. And in, in terms of the bad stuff, I'll tell you, it's interesting. It's been one of the really healthy things for me about the last couple of years is cool. getting exposed to it. I mean, it, um, you know, before I made The Last Jedi, like, I had never had anyone, like, hate me on the internet. If I got even, if it, during the course of a year I got one negative tweet, I would go into a panic. I'd be like, oh, my God, someone out there doesn't like me. I have <laughs> yeah, to fix that's this. That's how I get when I get yeah. one comment. I can't so, imagine a filmmaker. The yeah. thing is, though, it's, I am really, really thankful that, because what that meant is that my sense of self-worth was attached to the notion of everybody liking me online. Oh, interesting. And the fact that this process has made me disconnect from, has made me out of survival disconnect from that. And also, I think it's given me a more realistic view of, of the system that is social media. You mm. know, it's, um, there's a lot of great, great, genuine interaction that goes on. I mean, this, the bad stuff, kind of the systematic trolling, the almost gamified abuse that some people devote their entire online presence to. Um, honestly, it kind of once once you've seen enough of it, you see the pattern of it. It kind of mm. just gets boring after a while. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of like it, it doesn't even like give me the little negative ping of oh anymore. It's mm. it's literally, and I don't think it's even my skin growing tough. It's just. I put it into perspective and realize this is, you know, it's, this is kind of a byproduct of this, you know, social Twitter system. There's going to be some degree of people mm. where this is, this is their hobby basically. So, um, anyway, but it's, so I, overall it's been, I've found it's actually made me adjust to social media to where I, I, I am seeing it and and using it in a healthier way. I think. I'm going to hit you with two rapid fire questions because yeah. we have like Let's three minutes it. left. Yeah, um, yeah. One thing I want to know, I asked you this about this last night. Um, I want you to educate our audience on Sleuth because I have not seen it and I know that there's multiple versions. I think Michael Caine was in two of them, wasn't he? He wasn't yeah, like a so, 90s and a 70s version, but yeah. that's like one of the best twists you've loved as a filmmaker, right? I love it. So just see the 70s version. Okay. The 70s version is the only one to watch. Watch the 70s version, which is Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier. Um, the 90s version is not even, it's a totally different adaptation. And I, the 70s Why was one, Caine in the adaptation? Because, <laughs> well, I mean, he played the opposite character. It was an interesting kind of flip, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, it's Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine and um, I don't know how you can get it right now. I always lose I ordered track. it today. Do you order it? You might have to order the, D the DVD. DVD. Eleven ninety nine on Amazon. If you so to get it. <laughs> yeah, the less you know about, it, the better. But it started as a stage play. It was done originally as a stage play, and it's just got. Um, I mean, even besides the twists, it's two of the greatest actors just kind of going at each other for two hours <laughs> with some of the sharpest dialogue possible. And the house that it's set in very much inspired the house in Knives Out. It's mm. it's it's also, you know, Laurence Olivier plays a eccentric mystery writer and the house is filled with his obsessions. <laughs> and so you'll you'll recognize a lot of the stuff from Knives Out in there. Even involving all this press you're doing for Knives Out, have you had a chance to watch Mandalorian at all? Not yet. I've been traveling so much, I haven't gotten to hook up my Disney Plus account. I started I started the <laughs> registration process, and the wheel just kept spinning. I was like, shit, I got I to gotta go to the screening. I, I want look. you to guest direct in season oh, two. Oh, dude, that I would, would be, love Would you to, do man. it? Oh, hell yeah. If I had time to do it, I would get in there in a heartbeat, man. Yeah, I, I visited set for season one. It looked amazing. That's awesome. It looked so much, like, so much fun, yeah. All right, last Knives Out question. Yeah. I've seen it twice. Yeah. I saw it at Toronto. I saw it here last night at the premiere. 
Lightyear. It's one of the best audience films I've ever seen in my life. Ah, because, yeah. and here's what I'll tell you, and I yeah. mean this truly. Last night we were at a premiere, and you know how Hollywood premieres can be like everyone in the yeah. room, we all know each other, and it could be like, you know, you don't know if that's an actual, um, sure. a real life uh, reaction. But the reaction I had at TIFF was just in a, with an audience, and it felt the exact same energy, which I think is a very rare thing. That's awesome. I'm curious for you as a director, when you watch a film with an audience watching your movie, mm-hmm. uh, what is the scene that you are most excited to see how people react to? And oh. like, is it is it getting the reaction you intended? Yeah, I mean, whenever uh, the movie, because I've been around to a lot of these screenings now, and so I, 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 I've hit the point where I, I don't sit through usually the entire movie, but I will always come back for the last 20 minutes. Cool. And for me, that whole last scene with Daniel in the library, then the whole ending of the movie, watching how that plays, I feel like I can gauge if an audience has clicked in. And it's, it, it, I, I don't know. I typically don't love watching my own work with an audience. I'm usually curled up in a ball and really nervous. With this, it's just, it is a joyful experience. Can you imagine being your 10-year self watching this movie? It's so I mean, much fun. I, it's, for me, it's even, it's so much fun. It could because some, because what's going on, on up there, is the actor, so I can enjoy their work all day long. You know, yeah. well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me yeah, today. Thanks for appreciate having me. Appreciate the time. I appreciate um, it. Everyone listening to this, go see Knives Out, November twenty seventh. See it multiple times because it does reveal <laughs> a lot more on the on the other viewings. And keep an eye out for that awesome the dolly shot. to uh, yeah Look over the shoulder. The cool. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, man. My favorite part of that interview and the whole thing is spectacular. But Kevin, I know like you ask about film a lot, and when you get a great director who loves talking about film. Yeah, and Ryan Johnson revealing that on his birthday they finally let him <laughs> shoot with film. That was that so cool. Now you got to go find that shot—the one shot that that is used with film, which he claims is impossible. That I will not be able to tell. Like he, I guess it's one shot. He describes it in the interview. That's it's during the scene. No spoilers. Vague. Uh, in the last twenty or thirty minutes of the movie, uh, deals with the scene with Daniel Craig, and apparently in a scene in that scene, there's apparently a thirty-five millimeter shot, uh, which he said in the interview. Um, but he said because of the color correction and all the things they were able to do to the digital uh, uh, f- photography they were they got on set, uh, you probably can't even tell. It's probably matched so perfectly. That's awesome. I'm going to go back I asked, through with So it. this is kind of unrelated, but sort of related. I asked this question for you uh, you, you, your, your passion is now seeping into my consciousness <laughs> off camera. Uh, last week I interviewed the, the Safdie brothers for uncut oh, gems yeah. and I asked them, and it's so weird that I asked them this because I genuinely don't care, but I asked them <laughs> if they shot on film and they said, they not only did they shoot on film, they took yeah. a pay cut to be able to shoot on film. Like that's how passionate they are. Yeah. Uh, so they're like you. And then I walked out and my, uh, my uh, cameraman that day goes, Why'd you ask that film question? And I go, I genuinely don't know. He goes, you, you never ask questions like that. I go, I don't. I was like, it's because of Kevin. Yeah. Well, the show is changing our lives. And the Safties, uh, that's cool about the pay cut. Good for them. Um, the Safties have shot on 35 millimeter for good time and cut gem, and uncut gems. And to me, to be honest, and, and I don't care if you bring the best cinematographer on the world on the show to disagree or agree about 35 versus digital, but... I still think nothing will ever touch the way film looks. And you cannot tell me that Good Time and Uncut Gems would look that good and that gritty shot digitally. It would we not be the case. We have to bring Roger Deakins back onto the Whoa. show. The fact that I'm even saying back, just so, yeah, so but, Kevin can stare into his eyes <laughs> and say, you're wrong, Roger I, Deakins, you're wrong. I want to clarify something. I don't think Roger Deakins is wrong at all. And, and, and I almost He's just not right. Game. No, no. 
Roger Deakins, the reason why he makes 35 or digital look 35 is because he is so seasoned in the way he shot, he shoots his scenes and the way he lights his scenes that he is able to achieve that look by the way he executes his shots on set and then whatever they do in post. Deakins is a is a is a, is an example that should not be used in this case, in my personal opinion. I think he's one of the greatest cinematographers. He's, of, he's the exception, not the rule of all time. I mean, I I, I disagree with him on film versus digital, but I have zero knowledge about how to shoot a movie, and he has one hundred percent knowledge <laughs> of how to shoot a movie. So clearly. It's a personal opinion, but I do have people on my side like Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, Edgar Wright, J.J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson. I mean, there's a lot of people who will come out and actually downright say, including the Safties, who would take a pay cut to shoot 35 because they know that there's something magical about film. And honestly, Uncut Gems, this is going to sound really nerdy and super filmmaking-esque, but that movie... 35 millimeter is a character in that movie. It is a full blown character in that film. The I way that film leave, is shot. I want to leave Charlotte uh, right now, as soon as we wrap the show, so I can be in DC to watch Kevin watch 1917. Oh. That's all I want to do. I would just sit. I'd sit back with my back to the screen, and I would just stare at him. And and, and, and <laughs> Deacons is not wrong. Deacons is one of the one one Deacons of the few is never wrong. Never who can actually shoot digitally and make it look like film. Hence, Sicario. All right, let's get to the talking points. I want to start with that nostalgic uh, Star Wars video. So this came out, you know, everyone's kind of on board. I'm hearing this from a lot of people saying, I don't want to see anything else from Rise of Skywalker right now. You know, like, we're, we're this close. Don't show me any clips. And then uh, they release a clip and we all watch it. Don't show me the trailer. That clip. Okay, well, let's let's start with that clip, because I, I think that like clip that is clip. really funny. I think that clip's funny. It, no, Kevin I disagrees. liked it. Yeah, I How, did too. But they also, said, you can my humor out of context. It's a 30-second clip. Humor yeah. out of context can be weird. I will clarify something. J.J. Abrams is the reason why I'm excited about Nine. But why did four characters have to tell us they were flying? That's four funny. Characters. funny. I it's thought it not was funny, funny, dude. It's, it is after funny. After the second or third, it starts to get less funny. Like... The fourth person, I think Oscar Isaac's the final no, one to say three. it. three. 3PO che- says it, Boyega Chewie says, says it. it, and Chewie says it. You don't know Chewie don't says know. it. Come Chewie on, Chewie. You don't know that. is definitely saying that. Come Chewie on. is Dude, saying, Chewie could be saying like, you? fuck, man, here they come. No, you base Chewie's dialogue <laughs> off Chewie of the reactions say. of the characters in the scene. And they're but he's all not in the, he's not in the same shot with them, so it doesn't really make sense. I like it. I listen. I'm excited about Skywalker. <laughs> I did not think that scene was great. It looked oh, cool. That scene. It reminded I'm me. Gonna... Of, did you get a um, Return of the Jedi feel? Sure. Yeah. Like opening. Like I have a feeling that's probably the opening of Rise of Skywalker. Oh, you Gabe, think? Were you with me on that scene? Yeah. I bet that's. I bet that's in the from the opening. Gabe might not have watched it. Did uh, you watch it? Yeah. Did you? He hasn't watched Good it. Good for you. Okay. Did, yeah. did you watch it because you're? Did you not watch it because you're busy, or did you not watch it because you're trying to like hold back? This would be a great opportunity Both. for Gabe to have a mic. Yeah, We've right. discussed this off off camera. That'd be let's, great. Let's let's be Gabe honest. He's imaginary. He's not real. <laughs> there is no Gabe. We are so committed to this bit. <laughs> we are asking our imaginary friend questions. All right, I'm going to go on record as saying that that nostalgia um, video did nothing for me. It didn't. <gasps> it didn't hit me in the feels in a way uh, that I think it meant to. And I made a comment to Jake that is probably going to open up a really disturbing can of worms. 
And Gabe, I'm really sorry. I'm about to blow the entire uh, dock up. And the reason you made this comment is because I'm going back and rewatching all the Star Wars in chronological order and rating them and ranking them. But so my we, takeaway, and Kevin, I don't think you've heard me say this. I think the Star Wars saga overall is more misses than hits. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Completely agree with you. And I, and, and, but here's the thing, though. On Jake's defense, yeah, The Empire Strikes Back is so damn good. Sure. That I think the, the misses that, that have happened in that franchise are I'm okay with because I'm happy Empire exists. And listen, I mean, New Hope. All right. That's actually an interesting thing. New Hope, Jedi. Empire. Empire. New, New Hope, Empire, half a Jedi, and then <laughs> Force the, beginning, the beginning of Jedi is way better than the ending. The beginning of Jedi, oh, the first dude. half. No, uh, the last 45 minutes of Jedi are some of the best Star Wars ever. I, yeah, that's an opinion, but, you know, it's all uh, Ewoks or not, depending on what you think. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Um, no, I love you, it's but I, I, I don't, I, I think that Jedi is the weakest of those three, and I think you would agree, too. Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, yeah. Well, you we're know talking, what? like, we're talking a 10 from Empire, a 9.9999999 from A New Hope, and, like, a True. solid 9 from Jedi. Okay, all right, so with that, those numbers, Sean technically is accurate. So if you think about it like this. No, because I'd still give a high rating to Force Awakens, to Rogue One, um, mm. to Revenge of the Sith. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Seth, Sith has great scenes, but it's not a great movie. The, the last 80 minutes of Sith is fantastic. Okay, Jake, admit this one thing to me. Yeah. The prequels are generally considered to be misses. Is that is that a general consensus? Yeah, but, but like I said, okay, so I'm going back and rewatching. Generally. It. Oh, no, you're absolutely Solo right. Solo 2. Solo Solo's a miss. Solo did not hold up as well for me as I thought it was going to, which which hurts my soul a little bit. Not because anything was bad about it in my rewatch, what, but because there are no great Star Wars moments in Solo. Like, say what I, you want to about Revenge of the Sith and even Phantom Menace. Say what you want to about Phantom Menace. That's a better example. But I there think are they wanted, great Star Wars moments in Phantom Menace. I think Menace. they wanted the, uh, the card game where he loses the, the Falcon to be one. I think... They wanted him running the Kessel, doing the Kessel run to be one. But the problem yeah. is with all of those instances, when you know what the outcome is, right. you're just watching the inevitable. So yeah, okay. So one thing that Jake's rewatch has been has, has been reaffirming in my mind. Um, it's interesting. Sean's point, I, I immediately wanted to go towards him and on that because there are so many misses in my right. mind or things that have happened in Star Wars that I've been uh, upset about as a fan over the years. But then there's, but then, like I said, there's so many great things that have happened in that franchise that have happened to cinema because of Star Wars that I would look at, I would look back at that scope and go, I'm glad it all happened because it's one of those things where yes, there are problems. But in regards to the prequels, we discussed this in the show before, and I'll keep this very quick. There are great scenes in those movies. The Phantom Menace has arguably my top five favorite Star Wars scene, which is the Darth Maul fight. I, I, that's one of my favorite also, Star Wars Also, the pod scenes. racing scene holds up. Agreed. That's a great scene, too. I would just so, argue that more often than not, Star Wars fans are making excuses for things that don't I'd work in the more saga. often than not, Star Wars fans are assholes. Well, that might be true also. I mean, it, it, here's the thing. <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, out of all three of us, Jake is the biggest Star Wars fan for sure. out of all of us. So when it comes down to true... Uh, uh, um, true. No, but uh, but, but an opinion like matters. Nostalgia. It doesn't matter how much. No, but how much but of a I, fan but you I, are. I joke and I say that you your opinion is about Jedi. Jedi is a good movie. You know, so Jedi I, w- I would actually consider to be a, a hit. So real quick, 
You, we would go hope. New Hope is a hit. Empire. Right? We all agree on that. Empire yeah. is a hit. Let's Jedi say Jedi. Is a hit. Sure. Jedi. Let's say Jedi. What do you mean? Right. Let's say Jedi. Let's like, say Jedi. 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 Is, Jedi. Is a, Jedi? Yeah. Jedi is a very good Thanks. Star Wars movie. George Lucas <laughs> thanks you for, for Force your Awakens. Path. Force Awakens is Force a hit. Force Awakens. That's four. Yeah. I'm calling Rogue One a hit because of the last yes. scene. I'm Come sorry. on. The last Rogue scene is One. So are you kidding me? The last no. scene of okay, Rogue One. I did That's not. That's five already. That's at least half. Well, and I would. I'd argue Last Jedi also. So. Gabe, this is actually um, something that we could look for in the future for a blend game. But I would, I think we should do a game once where what the ending of a film saved the movie. Not ending blend, not best ending ever, but like Rogue One, for example. I, I didn't What's love Rogue One. What's the hashtag for that? I know. I didn't love Rogue One <laughs> all the way up until that Vader sequence and that major fight oh, at the end. The, that, the, when I, the last... Hour I mean, is, one is the battle scene. Right, but when I scene. left Rogue One. What do you mean one. one good scene? The last hour is the good scene. Do you know what's when the I, best Star Wars movie? Lord Miller's Solo. Yeah. <laughs> South okay. Okay. If we're yeah. going to talk about franchises <laughs> that have more uh, misses than hits, there's only one good Back to the Future movie. Okay, oh, now, that's There's that's only ridiculous. two good okay. Indiana that's, Jones movies. Right, that's Jake, ridiculous. Jake, I, I, yeah, that's Jake I, how I, many very few good Star Jake, Trek movies. I love movies. you. You got to unplug like, your mic, We can dude. do this all day, Stop. brother. No, Don't no. do this. Don't so do this. it's funny. So the way we all talk, uh, I went to college with two, great, uh, two guys who we made short films with together. And last night we went to a Tool concert in D.C. And these are the exact discussions that we all have together. <laughs> and we got into an actual debate last night about trilogies and it was specifically came down to back to the future versus star wars and i and i agree with my buddy sean and i agree with my buddy uh josh on this back to the future might be the most perfect trilogy of all time it is it is it is so far beyond star wars right it's it's not even the trilogy itself the trilogy is way better than star wars let me make an analogy let me make now make an analogy and then gabe i promise we'll move off this is a good Gabe, imagine Gabe, if they took up. Gabe is agreeing with me in silence, which gives me no help whatsoever. Imagine if they took Back to the Future and made a prequel trilogy about George McFly. <laughs> right. And then years later made another trilogy about people that kind of knew Marty, but not really. Right. <laughs> and and forced you every couple of years to deeply care about this and yeah. say to you, this is really important to your childhood. Embrace this again. And it's not organic. Do you know why they haven't done that? Because no one cares. <laughs> okay. All right. So first of all, um, I don't know if Jake saw this or not. Did you, the Jake, you saw the McFly um, spinoff, right? It was called McFly. Uh, McFly, a, a Back to the Future story. And so what they did was he go, like he's hoverboarding in this one scene, oh, right? I get it. And, and a cop pulls him over. Right. And he was flying. I so the cop goes, what's your, what's your, what's your name? That scene. I just rewatched that scene. What's I your name? problem with it. And, uh, and all of a sudden he goes, my, Michael J. Fox goes, I'm going to McDonald's on my hoverboard. He goes, oh, McFly. McFly. <laughs> there we go. All right. That's, so, that's the name. So like, last that, that night. That scene blew my mind, man. That was like, I was so happy about that scene. Last night, uh, Jake and I were able to see 1917. Kevin is going Wait. tonight. So we're going to talk about. Yes, one. Yes. Before we move on, we got to. Can we just at least mention the, the Star Wars that 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 video they put out with the montage? All I wanted to say about that was the Kevin oh, yeah, Smith yeah. thing. Yeah. Mention that scene. And here's why I want to mention that. Um, and Kevin Smith talked about this publicly at, at the q and I just went to for um, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. So we all know Mark Hamill's not in Reboot, right? And the story behind that was that Hamill, you know, the story he told on stage 
what, I'm going to paraphrase him, was along the lines of when we made 2001, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Star Wars was kind of not really a thing, right? I mean, Star Wars was kind of gone for a while. There was no new Star Wars. So when he went back to do Reboot, Disney, I don't, I don't know where, where the chain of command cut off or how it didn't happen, but the way Kevin tells the story is basically because Star Wars is such a big deal right now and Luke Skywalker, they, there, there was just no way that Mark Hamill could play C-Knocker, which was the, <laughs> the character he plays in, I'm not going to say the full word, um, but yeah, it's a bad word. Uh, uh, but so that was the reasoning apparently behind him not being in Reboot. So here's my question. They, had, they release a Star Wars montage of all the years, and then they cut to Kevin Smith with a bong saber <laughs> in a scene where he's about to fight C-Knocker, played by Mark Hamill in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. So I thought to myself after I saw that, one, that's amazing that Kevin Smith is part of that entirety, right? Because, I mean, like, Kevin Smith is actually a big reason why I love Star Wars. So like, like Kevin Smith's movies are kind of things that kind of got me more into the ideas of Star Wars and the Well, and J.J. loves him. J.J.'s had him on both right. sets. So. So, my point, so my point really comes down to, could Hamill have been in Reboot if they were cool enough to include Hamill Kevin? Hamill just voiced a murderous doll this I summer. Know. If he wanted so, to be in Reboot, he could have been in Reboot. No, I don't think it... Uh, the way Kevin tells the story is that it wasn't... Like, like Hamill wanted to do it, but it just wasn't... It, did, it wasn't the right fit because of where Disney and Star Wars are right now. I don't know who made the decision. That's that's the gist but I got But I, I would story. have argued by that point, Hamill probably had already filmed Reboot, to which Hamill could have said, if he really wanted to, what are you going to do? Cut me out of episode nine? Like, what, what, Disney do, what power does Disney have over him at this point? Do we even know he's in episode nine? Well, yeah, come on, dude. I think he has he, to be. He tweeted me yesterday that there's a <laughs> yeah, chance he'll be at the premiere. He's not the only Skywalker, though. But that was cool to see Kevin Smith in there. So I just want to shout out to him for that. It was oh. awesome. All right, hop over to 1917. Um, we're not going to get into any kind of spoilers. Not that it's a spoiler movie, uh, but Kevin's going tonight. Gabe has not seen it yet, too. Uh, Jake, these are questions that Gabe has put into the doc. Uh, did this disrupt you don't have to even get into specifics but did it disrupt your top 10 it did without question oh um, wow it's you know I, it's that time of year obviously where we're seeing a lot of stuff that is made to be on our top 10 list and uh, and i went into this sort of saying like i don't know how many more movies i could fit on my top 10 and it took all of about 20 25 minutes for me to go yep this is <laughs> this is top 10 for me so yeah this yeah. is a major contender um, and when it comes to voting, you know, because we vote for all of us vote for a lot of these award shows, um, not just a contender, but far and away, uh, my pick for uh, several categories. OK, are you willing to go? I've seen the word front runner thro- thrown around a lot for this move. Do you think it's that powerful? Um, I, you know, we, you're talking about for best picture. Yes. I don't know if I'd call it the front runner. I feel like that word's being thrown around, but just because it's the last movie that they, that's been screened, and I yeah. feel like front run, especially yeah. this Oscar season, front runner <laughs> is just associated with what's the last movie I saw that you didn't see, and uh, so I feel like that tends to be the front runner. Um, I still, I, I, I could if if this were one of those years, and I think it's going to be where picture and director are split. Okay. I feel like this would fall more under the give it like the director goes to Sam and picture potentially goes to maybe Hollywood or something. But Deacons, okay. I, like Deacons is a lock, right? Deacons is a lock. It seems to be. I'd have to go see who the other contenders are. Oh my God, I have the worst brain fart in the world. 
I ran into somebody outside of 1917 and we were talking about Dunkirk and how it compares with Dunkirk. And I I said, oh, yeah, and Hoyt, Hoyt Van Hoytema shot that. And then the guy I was talking to, I was like, I was like, who said who shot this um, with Mendes again? And he was like, it's Roger Deakins. And I was like, <laughs> that's like the whole hook. It's the whole hook of the movie is who the cinematographer is. I felt so stupid. I just want to take all those words right back. Um, OK, yeah. I mean, how it affects the awards race. It's one of those movies where it just feels like like the kid in it. I barely know who he is. And he could instantly get put into the best actor category. Like it's yeah. the type of movie that's going to just carry everybody through because it's technical brilliance is unparalleled and so yeah all those below the line categories obviously things like cinematography editing um it, it i can't wait till we can discuss this in full and obviously i have to wait not only till kevin and gabe have seen it but till, till more people have seen it because there's just so many things i want to i want to ask about like how how did they film this movie it's it's yeah. mind-blowing to me well no i just tweeted out last night is that you know i think all of us have a pretty good understanding of how movies work, like what it takes to make a movie. Like we've all been on sets before. We sort of say like, okay, like this is, this is it. I get it. May not have the capacity to do it ourselves, but I understand what it takes to pull it off. Um, I don't really understand how he did that last night. Like I get the idea of, of stitching and that it's a lot of long shots stitched together, but even within those long shots, there are things that happen where I go, I didn't see a stitch there. And X, Y, and Z just happened. And how did he pull all of that off with, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, an atonement, people walking up one side of the beach, turning around and walking down the other side of the beach. We're talking like massive action sequences that have to go down to the wire. If you haven't seen the behind the scenes featurette that's on YouTube, it's worth your time because the thing that they talk about that blows my mind is there are sequences where the camera might have to go uh, 500 yards on a camera. And then to keep the shot going, they have to take the camera off the wire and put it on a Jeep. And then the Jeep's got to drive another 500 yards. And then someone's got to take the the camera off the Jeep and then run with it down a field for 500 yards. And that's all one shot. And imagine being, we're we're, we're all getting to interview the actors and the the filmmakers in the coming weeks. I cannot wait to ask, like, what's the furthest you got into a shot (laughs) and messed up? Like, where you could see the end of the shot and you messed up. That's what I want to know. That's great. Yeah. I mean, because it's literally it's like 15 or 16 of those mind blowing sequences sequences together in one. Like we've all had those moments where you recognize you're in a one -er and you're like, oh, my God, like they're doing this all in one shot. And the choreography of where the camera goes and where the act in relation to the actors, that's this entire movie for two hours. It's that experience for two hours where you just and then you get there's a few. I mentioned this on Twitter. I said there were four times out loud where I just was like, Jesus, Deacons. Deacons. Like, are you, are you kidding me? The Deeks. What are you doing? Like, what is this? Let me ask Go you something. Easy on them. I found myself doing something that I kind of hated myself for doing, and I made myself stop halfway through the movie, which I was counting the stitches. Uh, every, oh, time I, every time I thought I could see one, I put a little mark down on a sheet of paper. And then I went, yeah. no, I got to stop. I got to stop doing that. Because well, but it's funny that you say it because I, I do feel cool. like, I think this happens to us. Uh, it definitely happens to me. I'm speaking for you two guys also. I watch movies now with just through a different lens, you know, where like as I'm absorbing stuff that's happening, I'm always like, oh, that's kind of cool how they did that. Like I'm I'm processing how they did it in the moment. Right. Like mm-hmm. so when you get to it, and that's why I always say to somebody like if a movie makes my top 10, it's because 
at some point early on in that movie, I usually stop doing that. And I'm just so engrossed in the story or whatever's happening that I stop in my brain thinking, oh, that's why they cut there. Oh, that's why they did this. Oh, look at how they did that. Oh, that's cool. How'd they pull that off kind of thing? I'm always sort of saying that. And when I can forget that and I'm just engrossed and that's what happened with 1917 where I was, but I, but I was playfully like you asking just like, how the hell? Like, where did they, it looks like he literally traveled back in time to 1917 and filmed in the middle of a a battle. Well, a master filmmaker um, is able, in my opinion, is it enables the audience to simultaneously suspend disbelief in storytelling and also sit back and wonder how it's done and also appreciate the process. Like, I feel like a a great filmmaker like Sam Mendes, I think Wes Anderson does this well. Um, there's a lot of great filmmakers, in my opinion, that I can have a dueling mindset while I watch. And it's to me, that is the that is the pinnacle for me as a film goer. I, I, um, I mean, and, I don't mean to be facetious when asking this question. Uh, I genuinely want to know what does what does Wes Anderson do that you don't understand how he does? Like, well, like, oh, maybe no, no. I'm not a big enough Wes Anderson fan to understand that. But wh- no, no, you're, we're on two different topics. You're, you're, I'm, I'm referring to what Sean just said about when you're watching a movie that you can have the mental element to stay in the story and okay. also appreciate the filmmaking. Not, Got it. not the idea of like how that was how done do that. more yeah. of like, like for example, I'll watch a Wes Anderson film and he'll have a camera stationary and he'll violently go, uh, go back and yeah. forth with it. Like in moonrise kingdom, as we go into the different rooms mm. and it's obviously drawing attention to a camera. And at the same time, I'm just sitting there going, I'm fully immersed in the story moment, but I'm also stepping back and going, oh my gosh, that's really cool what he's doing. But it never takes away from the story for me. And I think with something like 1917, I think the longest shot in the film, I think Deacon said it was eight and a half minutes. Uh, I was reading uh, something, he was doing an interview recently. I think it's eight and a half minutes. And the stitching is an interesting thing. I actually find that to be fun. I, I, I thought Birdman was enhanced to me because I was, watching for the stitches i mean to mm-hmm. me the master stitches the mattress ma- the master stitcher i guess if you want to call that um <laughs> if it would be alfred hitchcock um with rope and with yeah. rope and, and and rope rope is truly rope is exactly what men mendez did here on a different scale clearly oh, but dude. the I, I know i know but let me clarify the, the yeah. idea of the idea of marrying shots together um, you know, on a smaller scale back then, when you had these 10 minute film magazines, oh, you yeah. would re, you would, you would, you would go behind Jimmy Stewart's jacket, cut, come back out and you wouldn't even know the camera had cut. I mean, to me, that's fun. That makes rope fun for me to like, look for the cuts, look for where, where Mendez is going to be putting these in 1917. That being said, if he does it well enough, in my mind, as a critic, it will land perfectly where I will not fully yeah. ever leave the immersion, but I will still be in it enough to appreciate the shot process. To me, and this is going to sound nerdy, I think a cinematographer is a character. I, I genuinely think that. I think Roger Deakins is just as much of a character in 1917. I haven't seen it yet, but the trailers make me believe this. As any actor in that film, I would argue that Hoyt Van Hoytema is the star of Dunkirk. <laughs> and I, I genuinely feel that way. And so is Hans Zimmer. Well, so, here, here's what I'll say. If you said that, that Deacon said that the longest shot is eight and a half minutes. If that's true, then there were a lot more stitches yeah. than I thought there were because I oh, thought yeah. all of the shots 
were between 12 to 15 minutes apiece. So if, if, if you're telling me the longest shot in that movie is, and I don't want to say only, but only eight and a half minutes, then damn. He was estimating that the longest shots in the film were around eight and a half minutes. Now, that could be, he could be missing a big one. I, I, I don't know. I read, I read a quote from him, but that's what I read. All right, let's transition to this week in movies. We'll get deeper into 1917 after Kevin has seen it. Kevin, obviously, text us after you get out of the theater. I can't, I, I think will. I'm going to hear, I'm going to hear your reaction from down here in North Carolina. One quick thing. I don't ever want to come across as someone who's trying to sound like a snarky film guy. That, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just coming at this from, from my perspective of how I watch films like this. And, you know, people can get on my case about 35 and digital. You're being too snarky. You're being whatever. And I, and I get that. It's fine. But I, I don't ever, I want to make clarification that I don't ever want to come across as sounding like I know more or my mindset is different. You know what I mean? It, it's just my personal opinion on the matter. Too late, think. McCarthy. <laughs> All right. Just, just week, in case it came across that way. This week in movies. Um, again, Gabe's going to slip one in that no one's ever heard of before. Uh, this is probably straight to video or maybe like a, like a Hulu original. Has anyone heard of Almost Home? Almost Home. Is that about a dog? It sounds like it could be. Right? Honestly, it could be about I, a dog. I, homeward Bound just popped yeah. in my head right when you said that. Like, right Maybe when, it's like yeah. a Thanksgiving, like Jonathan Taylor Thomas is trying to get home for the holidays. Oh, what's he doing? Yeah, he's probably in Almost Home. JTT, right, anyway. come on the podcast. No one has seen Almost Home. JT squared. Kevin has seen Queen and Slim. Kevin, brief spoiler-free review of Queen and Slim. Another movie shot on 35 millimeter. First time feature filmmaker, <laughs> you by the pompous way. Pompous ass. Oh my God, you're no, so like, snarky. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. No, but I'll, in all honesty, this uh, filmmaker, Melina, uh, I'm trying to pronounce her last name. I think it's Matsukas. Okay. Um, she is the director of the film. She's done like a bunch of different like Beyonce uh, videos. She mm. shot this on 35. It looks incredible. Uh, essential premise. Daniel Kaluuya's character and Jodie Turner Smith, who's her first feature film, I believe as well. Uh, they're on a first date, a Tinder date. Something goes wrong. A uh, police officer pulls them over in self-defense. Daniel Kaluuya kills the police officer because he tries to fire at the woman, is uh, Jodie Turner-Smith's character, and they go on a Bonnie and Clyde-style run. And it's it's about that it's about the time they share together while you're watching the film that really kind of blew me away. Um, Daniel Kaluuya's accent as an American accent is truly one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. I don't understand how he does it. And I'll never forget when I, and I, and I get actors do accents all the time, but when I saw get out, I didn't know who Daniel Kaluuya was. And when I walked in that interview room, I still didn't know who he was. I mean, I knew what the movie was. I was, I had all my questions ready, but when he opened his mouth and started talking with his British accent, it was the most, it was, I was like taken completely back by it. Same thing with Jodie Turner Smith, who plays the, uh, who plays queen in the film. Both heavily British accents, and yeah. they sound nothing like that. And I, I get that that's acting, but Daniel Kaluuya might have arguably one of the greatest American accents I've ever heard. I don't understand how he does it. Dude, listen to him on our show. I mean, it's the it, most it, British slang insane. I've ever heard. It's like he's in a Guy yeah. Ritchie movie. I love this it. Is, it's, the, it's the greatest. Who this was it that did a great interview with him recently on Real Blend? That was me. That was me. That was me. I got to talk to him. But I'll say <laughs> Queen and Slim is probably one of the most hard R-rated films I've seen in a long time. I was actually shocked for violence That's, no it's more on the on the sexual side of it oh um i was talking don't, don't to tell so- me anymore i haven't seen it yet no i won't no, say anything specific. tell me more that was so creepy <laughs> i was after the film i was talking i was talking to i was talking to some of the other journalists who had seen the movie and we were all agreeing that 
we hadn't seen a scene like that in a movie since like the nineties. Like, wow. the, like, like sex scenes in films have really changed a lot over the years. And obviously the MPA is very specific about what they allow and what they don't allow. Um, I just remember when I left that film, that's not the only thing I was thinking about. Obviously it's a very important film, but that scene, there's a scene that, that occurs in where I was like, how did that not get an NC 17? Wow. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, uh, it's a great scene. It's actually arguably very well directed. Um, but, uh, just a heads up. It's not for kids at so all. So if it's Frozen a, yeah. 2 is sold out at the yeah, Thanksgiving box office, Slim. don't don't grab Queen and Slim um, tickets for the whole family. Let me just say this. Queen <laughs> and Slim is a great movie. I absolutely loved it. Great performances. Very powerful. Very important. You know, I, I bring up these little details. The movie actually has some very funny moments in it. And, and it's very human, if that makes sense. It's very okay. human. Um, I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it. I give it a four and a half out of five. Highly recommend seeing Queen and Slim, for sure. Cool. Well, we've yeah. all been raving about Knives Out. That's the other film that's opening this Thanksgiving weekend. Obviously, we had Jamie Lee Curtis on last week's show, and we've got Ryan Johnson uh, in this week's episode. So um, I, we, we can scale the gushing back to a certain extent. I think you all know that the three of us are big fans of it. Uh, I will say this about Knives Out. It, it's it's a great ensemble uh, comedy it's got some tremendous lines in it. Ryan Johnson wrote a really great script. It's paced beautifully. Everybody sort of gets a standout moment. But it's become one of those films that when I saw it, um, I thought, oh, that actually has a really good chance of making my top 10. And then in this year, it's just not it's not going to make it. And it's not a slight against the movie at all. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Kevin was saying this in last week's episode repeatedly. It, it bears repeating. It is a great audience movie. It's like, amazing. It's just, audience it might movie. be my favorite movie I've seen with an audience this year. Yep. I'm with you, Sean, in that I think it got bumped out of my top 10, which kind of hurts my soul a little bit. <laughs> that a movie that was my favorite audience experience of the year is not going to make my top 10. Like, that's what it, it says about 2019. Yeah. And it didn't win the audience award, which is. The weirdest yeah. thing I've ever heard of in my life. That, that oh, award yeah. is designed to be an audience award. Now, granted, I have not seen Jojo Rabbit. Come on, if you're going to give that movie to anything, you're going to give it to a movie about Nazis. Yeah, I know. And that, and I was in uh, Princess of Wales when Jojo played, and I didn't think... it. I, it no offense to Jojo Rabbit, it didn't get a sliver of the reaction that Knives Out got that, in Toronto. Jojo hasn't stuck with me the way I thought it was going to. I, I really enjoyed it. I still it. haven't seen enjoyed it. Enjoyed it is a, is a weird word, but I, I liked it when I saw it at the at the junket. Right. And then I think I even, maybe even said like, oh yeah, that's in contention for my top ten. And yeah, you, I, you loved know, it. And, and and there, you know, for, for you know, and and one of the, the X factors that you can never really account for when reviewing a movie, especially right after seeing it, which is why I, I kind of, sometimes I hate giving reactions right after I see a movie, is how it sticks with you. Sometimes a movie doesn't hit you. Kevin, you know, with, with, with your number one this year, sometimes a movie just doesn't quite affect you the way you think it's going to, yeah. but then it builds, it snowballs over time and, and becomes this masterpiece in your mind. And sometimes you walk out going like, oh, I like that, and then you forget about it the next day. And that's and the latter is how, how I feel about Jojo Rabbit, which really surprised me. Um, that it didn't really affect me the way that I mean, like I, it's it's a couple it's been a couple of months and I'm not thinking about it anymore, which I'm disappointed Jake, in. Jake brings up something that I find insanely fascinating. This is something we can get into in another show, um, and maybe we'll turn it into a blend game. But we we all don't have the luxury of rewatching films numerous amounts of times. Um, and I wonder. That being said, I have a DVD copy of 1917 in my home right now. But that being said, though, my, my point is, like, I had the luxury of watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood four times. And it wasn't until the third 
an ending of the third and into the fourth that it became my favorite movie of the year. And what that does to my mind now is I wonder, looking back on this whole year, which other films would I need to watch four times to get to that point? And like, it's, that's why top tens are so interesting is because in our top tens, how many times have we seen each of these films? Right. And, you know, at, at the, when TIFF ended, Uncut Gems was my number, number two of the year, and it's been my number two of the year since. I, I've gone back and forth with, like, switching the spot up with, uh, with another film specifically, which I'll get into when we do our top tens. But Uncut Gems has been my number two since then. I've only seen that movie once. If I've seen Uncut Gems four times, what happens to it? Does oh, it man. does it go does it go down? Does it go up? And I and I find that interesting because you have to bring those factors into your scale. I remember I think our friend Kim um, Holcomb, who does uh, reviews out in Seattle, she has a really interesting perspective on how she does reviews. I think it's Kim. When when she gives her reviews, she'll tell people when she's on TV what her mindset was that day she watched it. So when you go into a film, let's say you worked a 15-hour day, you got home, your car broke down, you got into a horrible accident, your kid got an F on a report card, and then you sit down like and watch a horrible it. Day. I'm, I'm just that saying, a, like, ima- an awful I'm, I'm, imagine... You should watch a movie that day. <laughs> my, my, I'm <laughs> giving exaggerations, kid. but imagine... But that is an interesting perspective, right? Like, right now, like, you know, I'm going to see 1917 tonight. I'll have already put in a, you know, a 12-hour workday at that point, which I'm no, not complaining whatsoever, but you got to think about where you are mentally, right? Like, yeah. I but you know what happens to me too? It. On a repeat viewing, if a movie doesn't hold up the way that I thought it might, or if it's just not, it didn't hit me as much. My question is always, what was the movie's job? Was the movie's job to work really well the one time, you know, that I, that I saw it? Yeah. Or is it supposed to live up to repeat viewings? Is that the movie's fault yeah. necessarily? Interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, that, these are things we, I think we should dive into this another point, another, another show. Maybe like a rewatch blend or something like that, where maybe we all uh, we all rewatch a movie we only ever saw once. So, for example, mine would be Last Jedi. I only saw Last Jedi one time, so I'm very curious now that I'm away from the hype, I'm away from the expectations, how that movie plays. Gabe and would I'm, like us to to remind the audience that this started as a knives out conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, honestly, that's why we do what we do. And this is, you know, I, I know we're going off track, but anyways, yeah. knives out's amazing. Star rating we all for loved knives it. out. Star rating. Go see, go see it. I give it. I give it a four and a half out of five. Uh, I'd give it a four. I would give it a four also, but a very strong four. Four point two five. Four like a it's four great. that's been a four that's been doing push ups. And honor don't be of, that jerk who gives that movie away. Do not be oh, that jerk that's, who I mean, ruins that's that for somebody. Please don't be that person because that's a great ending. <laughs> it's such a great ending. It's a great ending, but it's also one of those ones that's like expertly constructed that it reveals a lot of stuff early. You're right. And like, it's not like you're just waiting around like who done it, who done it kind of thing. Sure. It's much the smarter ending, than the, that. Yeah, the ending is not my favorite part of it's that movie. Smarter. I mean that as a compliment. The, but, yeah, but that's the point of the ending is that the ending is aware of how that, wor- that structure yeah, yeah, yeah. works. All right, that's well, why it's cool. Yeah. For this week's blend game, uh, we are doing hashtag murder mystery blend in honor of Knives Out um, and the parameters of what is a murder mystery, I think, um, can be up for debate. If, is it a detective type story? Um, is it Can you get into serial killer type things? So I'm going to make my pick first. Uh, and I'm going with one where so I debated about this a lot. Like, I think that there are traditional murder mystery, whodunit type films that are, uh, you know, contained to a single space, something like Clue, where everybody uh, in the movie is kind of, similar to Knives Out, where everybody in the movie is kind of figuring out what's going on. There's been a murder 
Um, but then you, if you're calling something a murder mystery, I think you could also do like police detective type thriller. And so my pick is seven. And then it's funny that like somebody on Twitter also said, uh, does seven count? I don't care whether it counts or not. This is my pick. And that's kind of how I feel also. Like you can make an argument that seven might not fit into this murder mystery, but there are a lot of murders <laughs> and they're trying to figure out who is behind these murders based on the seven deadly sins. And the reason why I'm going to argue that this does fit under murder mystery blend is that you do get to a reveal of somebody uh, who is responsible for it. Now, it doesn't have that playful lark of movies like Knives Out or Clue. So uh, it's far more depressing than that because it's made by the master uh, David Fincher. But uh, as we've discussed, well, yeah, as we've discussed uh, with Fincher over the years, if I'm picking favorites, that's a great one. Not over his best. I still think Seven ranks as my favorite film of Fincher's. Zodiac potentially being his best. He's made some masterful, masterful films. Uh, so my pick for Murder Mystery Blend is Seven. Now, Jake, oh, I'm told you that didn't you didn't go Zodiac. No, no, no. I went Seven. I'm going Seven. See, Zodiac seven would be an interesting is. choice because we don't know who the murderer is. Correct. Which is actually fascinating. So it's thoroughly unsatisfying to me. I'm dismissing that <laughs> that film, that hack work by Fincher. How dare he? But That's when we get to movie. Decade Blend, which we're going to do on our 100th episode, uh, I think Social Network is going to be up at the top for me. I don't know. There's a lot of movies I'm debating over the over the decade, but we'll see how that plays out. All right, before we get too deep into that, why don't I throw it to Jake Hamilton to make his pick for hashtag Murder Mystery Blend. Well, you were questioning whether or not uh, seven was even an appropriate choice for uh, for this particular blend game. I also question whether or not it's the appropriate choice. In fact, I questioned it earlier today when I asked Gabe, "Does this work?" Because seven is also my pick for yes. murder mystery blend. Uh, I, I mean, not only is it one <laughs> of the, the not as the my favorite murder mystery of all time, which I think it is absolutely appropriate for for that. It's also just one of my all time favorite movies. It's my favorite Fincher movie. Um, it's up there with my favorite Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman movies. Uh, and I think it, it's it's a film noir, which I think if film noir doesn't fit murder mystery, then what does? Uh, right. To me, it, it's just as much uh, in, in the uh, the realm of like a Chinatown uh, than anything else. Um, just the, the unnamed city, the fact that like it's this city that's grimy and wet and gross, but surrounded by a desert. And you, and we, ne- it's never named. Like the city is never named. Like you never know what city it is that they, uh, that they're working in, which I right. love, um, because it could be any city, and it could be any person, and it could be, you know, it, like this could happen to anybody. Um, the, I think the screenplay is tight and effective. Um, the reveal, honestly, I think the re- the Kevin Spacey reveal in Seven is a thousand times better than the Kevin Spacey reveal in Usual Suspects. It a hits me. Thousand times it better. It hits me. It hits me way harder. It seems oh. it seems more organic and less of a cinematic shock. Like the usual, like Kevin talks about a lot about moments in movies where the moment feels like it's in a movie, like it's aware that it's a movie. I like the Usual Suspects, but that movie feels like a movie moment. Like this, like th- that moment in Seven just feels like an organic shocking. Like how did I not see that? I mean, Kevin Spacey's in the movie earlier in the movie. He's in the in the uh, the stairway with them. He's the one yeah, taking the pictures. You don't see him, though. You don't, but the fact that like they put him an Oscar winner right in front of us, and we didn't even right. see him. I mean, like that we experienced uh. what what uh, Detective David Mills experienced, which is like he was right in front of us. The three performances in that movie are so perfect. Like yeah. the the cliches of the rookie, frustrated, uh, you know, adolescent cop 
who's all impulse and has no work experience with the grizzled, you know, pending retirement uh, cop is so overdone. Yeah. Like you it's the best even, version of a cliche. You shouldn't even try it. Right. Like, it's just terrible. Like when you introduce it and then those two do it and you're like, oh, my God, that's the greatest. And, and as horrible as it sounds, John Doe's justification for his murders, like the the, yeah. the the car scene where they're driving out into the desert. And I think it's like a, like a 10 minute long scene. And yeah. he justifies each of his murders. By no means am I saying that, like, I, I sympathize with the justifications or that I understand that's the justifications. Yeah. But you just sort of go like. Oh, because I feel like a lot of those movies don't take the time to do that. And the writer of that movie did another movie that wasn't nearly as good, but also touches on something interesting. He did. He wrote a movie called Eight Millimeter, and it was this really rough with Nick Cage and Joel Schumacher mm-hmm. directed it. And the end of the movie—spoiler alert—the movie's like twenty years old. Uh, you get to the <laughs> you get to the killer who's done these unbelievably horrible, brutal things, and he has a similar moment where he sort of says, "Like, look, like." You know, I'm not a monster. You know, like, uh, you know, daddy didn't abuse me. You know, I didn't get raped as a child. This didn't happen to me. X didn't happen to me. I just like to do this. And I like to me, that's far more. That's so chilling. Like hearing these guys justify in their minds and 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 you and finding that logic in there is horrifying. And it's it's far and away my favorite murder mystery. Seven. Good choice, Sean. Well, if we had uh, all picked seven, Gabe would tell us to read them all out loud at the same time, which means Kevin has a different choice. Yeah. Kevin, wrap us well, up. Murder Mystery Blend. I went with Rope um, primarily because I think it's I think it's arguably nice, one of Nice little theme we have going on today. Well, Rope is like, it's like the greatest murder mystery of all time. The, the, the dead body is right there yes. <laughs> and no one knows it. I mean, to me, that is... I mean, I, I know it's an adaptation, uh, but I, I just found the way Hitchcock chose to direct that film, trying to make it look like it was continuous shots. But the idea of these two friends, or these two guys strangling their former classmate, putting that body inside of like a wooden chest, and then inviting family and friends over to have dinner on the table where the dead body is, and then the entire anxiety of the film was them wondering where this guy is like they're like oh is he late where is he at and it, and like it's so it's so brilliant because the two guys are doing it to kind of see if they can get away with it and like the aren't they trying to like impress jimmy stewart's character like in stewart's the one who starts really trying to like capture what happened and trying to yeah he's, I he's, he's the one like their psychological bro- teacher or something like that a professor yeah like they 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 actually they actually planned the murder based on previous sessions with that with that character God, like such it, a it, good it, movie it, you, you put me in the mood to watch a, that movie now but it's it's only an hour and twenty one minutes, and it's it's just. And I remember seeing it when I was a kid. My dad and mom got me this Christmas present one year. It was a it was this strangely red velvet Alfred Hitchcock collection. It came in this weird casing. It was made of velvet, and his face was was like indented into the front of it, like the like the the what do you call it? The um, silhouette, the silhouette of uh, of uh, Hitchcock, and you would yeah. open it up with this, like this like really nice peeling back thing and you would pull out these four uh disc cases that had four movies each inside of them of Hitchcock's career from the beginning to you know to towards the end and Rope was in there and I had never seen Rope before that's kind of how I discovered that film it was you know when I was a kid I I saw a movie that was made in 1948 I'm like I don't want to watch 1948 movie I was you know I was young is that really how old it is but I yeah I threw it on and I threw it on and I'm like and I remember my buddy my buddy Chris who was a film fan like me telling me about how this was all like done and like i just couldn't believe 
the lengths he went to get those shots, like just like going behind Jimmy Stewart's jacket or whatever it was. But to me, the ultimate murder mystery of a dead body being in the scene with the people trying to figure it out is just masterful. I mean, what That's a great, great idea. And I know it's based on a previous work. I think it's a play, but it's just so well executed. Like it's one of my, it's one of my favorite murder mysteries, my, probably my favorite murder mystery ever. So, so Alexander good. Struntz uh, writes in via the Real Blend email account, uh, and he goes with the pick I almost went with too, another Hitchcock pick, Rear Window. Rear Window. Oh, it's a great one. Terrific, yes. Uh, William Unhock chooses Scream, the first Scream. Kimberly Sue, uh, at Rob the Mind, and several others went with Clue. I honestly and- really did think about Clue for her, because I do love that movie. I've you don't? Seen, I've never seen Clue. You've never, never seen Clue? Do you know the whole bit it. where um, they, never like, in theaters, it. they they released it with different endings? You've I never seen Clue that, either? Yes. No. Oh, my guys, it. it's so good. No. Should we get I Clue? I know. And Mac Rowden, who's listening to this right now, is, is fuming because I think Clue is one of his most favorite movies of all time. And <laughs> here I am admitting right now as the managing director of Cinema Blend that I've not seen <laughs> Clue. <There's> a- <laughs> oh, my God. It, it's so good. They just had a screening... At uh, the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, and not only was it sold out, but the line for it was like wrapped around the corner of people who came out to see Clue on the big screen. I mean, I know that it's really popular, and I'm sure that it's very, very funny, and I, I even believe I have a copy of it somewhere around here. I just have never, there's like a, there's like a void uh, it, from like high end of high school, college age where I had a life, and I didn't see as much stuff, uh, but that are like super What's that 90s. Like? It's it's kind of it's kind of glorious actually it's kind of glorious um, so I just missed out on a lot of back titles in. hey Hocus Sean. Pocus and stuff like that yeah Kevin I was curious if you had read this story recently oh. Um, oh Patrick Cren- Cranshaw uh, who yeah. was in the movie Old School great actor um, did you hear about his favorite line in the history of movies Patrick Crenshaw who is in uh, what was he in again what he was an old he was in Old School. Old school. Yeah. Mm, no, I don't know what it is. What, what is Patrick Crenshaw's Crenshaw. favorite movie line of all time? Well, he played the character Blue, so his favorite line of all time is, you're my boy, Clue. You know, these episodes could be a lot shorter <laughs> if we just cut out all of this oh bullshit, man. Oh my God. We, these could be nice, solid, 25-minute like, long the, episodes. The key now to these are to, are to find the most random route my to God. get to the dumbest pun. I, I am fully aware of how stupid that is. I'm sorry, my boy just Clint. now did the did the mission for them to come dumb? Like, they, like that no, just no, no, started? No. No, it's gotten to a point now where Dave's losing it. They've gotten to a point now where they've become so ridiculous that the it, it's Dude, almost they, better. No, Scott they, Crenshaw. Wait, What's his name? Robert Crenshaw. Pat, uh, Patrick Crenshaw. <laughs> I, I, I swear you will never hear that name. <laughs> he played Blue, <laughs> man. Anywhere. Dude, I love Blue. Blue is a great character. All right, in we're old staying. School. We're uh, staying in the is genres. Blue a great character. You're my boy, Blue. Come on. He doesn't even say that line. <laughs> I know, but someone says it to him. Remember the Metallica song and they pick him up? Come on. Blue's amazing. Next you're, week, you're, we're you're, staying. You're, you're, you got to raise your bar, man. I love Blue. <laughs> Next week, so does staying Sean. in the genres. Uh, we played musical recently. We played murder mysteries. We're playing hashtag rom-com blend. Next week. Oh. So bring your favorite rom-com and tell us uh, via social media at Real Blend. Uh, at email, realblend at cinemablend.com. No, I don't think so. 
Wow. And, you know, this is kind of fun because it's favorite now, at the very yeah. least. It's not doing best anymore. I don't think we did this, though. No. <laughs> so let us know your pick through all of our various channels. And while you're at it, oh, wait, I got to do a review, don't I? Do we have a review this week, Gabe? When are we doing uh, Cranshaw Blend? <laughs> <laughs> Blue Blend. Yes, we do have a listener review. Okay, here we go. This is from, all right, we've, we're saving these for the end of the show now. Uh, this is from someone named Fudgnu? 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 F-U-D-G-N-U says, entertaining, educational, and excellent. All right, I'm going to like this one. In high school, I lived in a small town with no movie theater, yet every Friday morning, my mother and I looked forward to seeing Kevin McCarthy on Fox giving his movie reviews. I discovered Real Blend from following Kevin's Twitter, and I'm ever so glad that I did. I listened to this podcast walking to class at the gym, and on the nine-hour drive back to that small town. The fact that I can listen to Sean, Jake, and Kevin's insights, then actually go see the movie in theaters, is so satisfying that I can hardly contain myself. This is, first off, one of the best reviews I've ever heard in my entire life. These three are... Very well written. ...an ideal bridge between critic and audience. They see and understand things that I do not yet they are able to enjoy the full picture that the film puts forward with an excitement that cinema deserves. Even so, the most striking aspect of this podcast is Gabe. No, I'm kidding. Is the way that interviewees <laughs> obviously kind of appreciate the group. <laughs> well, I thought you were serious. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> no, I was kidding. Uh, even so, the most striking aspect of this podcast is the way that interviewees obviously appreciate the group as they can sense the genuine excitement and passion about the field. This podcast features high-profile interviews, fun facts, behind-the-scenes information, and an enthusiasm that will make you want to talk about movies with all of your friends all day long until they are thoroughly annoyed. Highly recommend. That's the greatest uh, review that we've received in a very, very long time. We're probably also the only podcast who's ever mentioned Patrick Cranshaw on their show. We we have that going for us. I've already forgotten his name. Guys, his name. He was in Hudsucker Proxy. He was in Bonnie and Clyde. We gotta do. We gotta don't, respect Patrick don't Crenshaw. Don't off these names like you. Like you've You're been a lifelong to... fan. You just looked this guy up on IMDb. Don't don't like don't, don't act like you've got like a, like a like a life size cardboard cutout of this guy in your home. Like you just looked this guy up. Tweet us your favorite I didn't know Patrick. Patrick Crenshaw was until 15 minutes ago. I had absolutely no idea who he was. <laughs> I know. Just... Just, just to get to you're my boy Clue. It's amazing. Like, no, I didn't. Mean, I didn't say it like that. I'm just genuinely think he has a pretty good filmography. I think we should be paying attention to this All guy. Right. If you want to learn more about Patrick Crenshaw in person, uh, come to our DC meetup. We are. This is obviously episode number 94. Means we have uh, five left until we record the 100th episode, uh, which we will be doing in Washington. Are we going to be able to get in five before? Uh yeah. 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 Yeah, I think. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Hey, uh, hey episode 99 is going to be eight minutes long. <laughs> hey, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Just curious if you heard about Kevin, Patrick Kevin, we got to go. You have a hard out. <laughs> his, but what about Patrick Cranshaw's favorite David Lynch film? Have you heard about this? Uh, you're my boy, Blue Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're my boy, Blue Velvet. Yes. Thank you. Yes, All right. If you would like beautiful. to RSVP for the DC meetup. I hate this podcast. I really It do. is going to be on You're Saturday, January 4th. I'm embarrassed to be a part of it. In Washington, DC. Uh, to RSVP for the Real Blend meetup, because we only have a, a few slots left. We actually had to cap this off based on the response, which again, amazing problem to have. And that is unbelievably cool of you guys. 
Uh, but if you want to go, if you have any intention of coming to it, sign up now. Go to this website, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Real Blend DC. You can RSVP there. We're actually going to work out a, a ticket system because it's we're going to announce a venue relatively soon. Everything's starting to fall into place. Uh, we're trying to put together some really cool things for you guys for that Saturday. Uh, for those of you who are curious about where you can book a hotel, we're starting to get a couple of um, asks about the area. We're going to be in the Georgetown area. We can say that. Um, specific venue and exact time still just being finalized, but we'll be in Georgetown. So if you're looking for a place to stay, stay somewhere around there, stay around GW, uh, take a cab or an Uber right over to the Georgetown area. And that's where we're going to be on Saturday the 4th. Okay, back next week. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, Kevin. I, I got to do one, one more. more. I'm sorry, please. It's Thanksgiving. You're killing right. Gabe. All right. <laughs> Thanksgiving. I will gift. be grateful when this show is over. <laughs> Patrick Cranshaw's favorite Tyler Perry movie. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Hold on. Wait, let me, give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, any, any guesses on this one? No, Jake knows this one. Uh, I don't know. What is it? Blue, oh. a Medea Halloween. <laughs> I got it right as you said it. I got it right as you I thought blue. about blue. Boo. A Medea Halloween. <laughs> Boo, and then blue too. He loved Lord blue too as well. why on earth you would want to follow us on social media, but if you want to, at Real Blend, at Jake's Takes. At Kevin McCarthy TV and at Sean <laughs> underscore O'Connell. Please drop us a review on iTunes. Be nice. <laughs> like, I understand. Here comes I'm going to give us a bad review. <laughs> Sean, you are just as much in on these as I am. I am. You I just, do, but I have to play the heavy, Kevin. I, I have know. to play. I, yeah, yeah. I do the cap. I, I get it. That's my bit. Yeah. All right. We'll be back next week after Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week. Dunkirk Blue 1917 it's better You're my boy Boo <laughs> When you said You know it's funny Like Blue Velvet I was just gonna say Blue, blue I was gonna say Blue Velvet But you made it so much better By saying you're my boy Blue you're my, Velvet You're my boy Blue Velvet <laughs> It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons And we're serving up A special deal Just for you our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.